1: Uh, so, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Juan Pablo Pardo Guerrero about the Quantified Scholar: How Research Evaluations Transformed the British Social Sciences. Uh, so, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be back.
1: Um, this, it, it's. I mean, this is a great book. Everybody should read it. It's hugely important in in terms of thinking about not just British academia, but actually about, you know, the sociology of science kind of more generally. But I'm interested in where it connects to your previous work. Um, the previous podcast was um, really a sort of sociology of of, of finance book. So where, where did you get the idea uh, to write about um, academic social science as, as your sort of object of study?
0: Well, um, my... My career really centers around the study of markets and one of the things that is interesting about markets is how they affect the realms within which they exist and the first book was of course about the construction of markets and how all these different invisible experts uh, collaborate to create these very complicated systems such as stock exchanges. But this second book has to do more with how the process of creating something that looks like a market, a system that assigns value connected to some monetary gain, affects the world where it inhabits. And and the idea really came from observing discussions on the ground of how important research evaluations were for the both status, finances, and also sort of internal meaning of organizations when I was working in the UK. And understanding these as market-like processes was the initial impetus for the book uh, as I started to think about the project and how to go about it.
1: I guess the key thing to kind of create these market-like um, conditions, these these market-like activities it is um, the thing that kind of runs through the book which is this idea about metrics both in terms of objects of study but also um, within the kind of broader governance system that you know chooses them gives rise to them and and kind of gives them um, power and indeed you know allows people to respond to them mess around with them play with them and, and sometimes resist them so this is is obviously you know something that's not just about um, academic social science, you know, th- there's a rich kind of uh, sociology of, of metrics. And it'd be interesting to hear about, so what are they in, in terms of the object of study? And in this context, what, what kind of metrics are we actually talking about for governing academic life?
0: So I think that the the metrics that we use in a variety of the domains um, are essentially ways of creating standards that that sort of peg our work and expectations about our work onto specific um, specific targets or paradigms or definitions of what is desirable. And what I find interesting about the sociology of metrics is, is both understanding how these targets, these standards are created, designed, how they're enacted within organization, so how they come to actually matter, and then, of course, how they work on the ground. And there's a lot of really fascinating work on, on metrics and on scores and different forms of quantification that shows how these exist both as ideals that people try to sort of hit, that they try to attain, but at the same time, they work on the ground as these more practical objects of contestation that allow you to do things locally that might not necessarily speak to that ideal. So for example, they can become part of office politics without actually having any connection to the the ultimate objective. They can become instruments for rewarding or punishing certain individuals whether or not that reflects their ultimate goal and that aspect of metrics both the ideal objective that they have in mind by design and the way they're used on the ground is what i find interesting and fascinating in the literature on metrics i mean in order to think about that in the
1: context of the quantified scholar we need to know a bit about britain um and and obviously um, at the time of recording, Britain is in the middle of thinking a lot about Britain and Britishness, um, but in, there is a particular kind of um, history to British higher education and a particular history of audits and, and metrics in British higher education, and I think that gives a, a really nice overview of um, both um, the case study uh, context for listeners who aren't familiar Um, with British higher education, but also things like uh, the research assessments exercise, the research excellence framework, give us clues about what the overall goal of some of these metrics you're
0: studying uh, might be. Yeah, so what is that ideal in the case of of Britain? Um, It really has to do with the crunch that the country lived in the 1980s, actually not that different from the crunch that it's living today where finances at the state level were under lots of pressure. And of course, one of the first uh, victims of that was higher education. So uh, late 1970s, early 1980s sees a drop in the level of funding for higher education institutions in the UK, which are all, for all intents and purposes, public institutions that follow very similar designs that are very comparable. And out of that, there was a movement of both scholars or academics and also policymakers to try to make the funding as efficient, quote unquote, as possible. To make uh, money go to the centers where the most excellent research was conducted. And this led to the first iteration of these exercises of evaluation. They were really... Ways of of assessing the quality of research so that funding, or at least part of the funding that is allocated to public universities in the UK, would um, be used by those who demonstrate a higher impact, a higher sort of reach, a sort of more excellent research on the basis of every pound that they get, and. What is really fascinating, of course, is that this was based initially on these very loose metrics of what is excellence and what is not. The metrics in this case are peculiar because they're really a score that goes from zero to four, and that has been a characteristic of the system for a long time, zero meaning that it's something you can't grade for uh, signifying something that is of international excellence. Uh, but what is what is really fascinating is that a lot of this started With academics pushing for these types of assessments to to be instituted because they saw them as a way of making sure that the best science in the country, the best research, the best scholarship was protected from the austerity of those early days. And this evolved in complexity from a very light touch thing back in 1986 to a much more intrusive system recently, in
1: 2020-21. Yeah, and, and a much more expensive system as, as well. And one of the things the book tries to chart, actually, is not just the kind of the explosion and, and growth uh, of this regime, but I suppose the kind of lived reality of, of working within um, that regime, um, how its impacts are distributed around different career stages um, and different academic disciplines and crucially actually different institutions but also what it's done um, to British social uh, science in a variety of different ways and and one of the things I I was really taken with in the book was its variety of methods to kind of get to grips with this and so I suppose one route in to think about the methods in the book um, is to ask two questions and and the first is um, could you say a bit about um, the people you interviewed Uh, and I guess kind of what it's like to kind of live through that. Um, where are we nearly kind of 30 year regime of, of being inspected?
0: So I think the, the, the fascinating aspect of the interview, so I interviewed folks from across the social sciences, anthropology, politics, economics, and sociology. And across also the career stages, so from very early career researchers to established scholars who were um, close to retirement. And what was very interesting is that they all, of course, lived through these means of evaluation or these systems of evaluation throughout their lives. But they had to some extent either naturalize them as something that was inevitable or in some cases even justified them as something that was necessary to guarantee the legitimacy of public expenditure on research. Why should the public spend money on medieval research? Or why should they spend money on social theory? What is social theory good for at the end of the day? The, the ref provided, in a sense, for them at least, a justification for these expenses. So even though they had this ambiguous relationship with the, the assessments, they were very pragmatic about them. These weren't necessarily seen only as these intrusive external impositions on academics, but they were seen as part of the game, as part of how, in a sense, British academia is structured and is maintained and justified in the public sphere.
1: But I guess at the same time, um, I can't can't remember, I think it's the third or fourth chapter, you, you bring up this idea of actually, you know, this is quite a useful disciplining device as well in terms of people's careers. And I think one of the things that's really important in the book is, as you just described, the kind of ambivalences, nuances. Um, the the gaming of, of this system, but there are points in, in 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 some of the field work where it's really clear that um, you know people have had quite a bad time around these metrics, um, particularly in in terms of on the one hand people who've had management responsibility and have kind of observed what they refer to as these difficult conversations if people are underperforming based on the metrics, but then also people um, who you know maybe have, have sort of had research ideas shut down or, or have been nudged in in particular directions, and, and I'm keen to, to hear a bit more, I suppose, about that kind of sense of um, this regime as an instrument of labor control. Yeah.
0: So, so that was what I what was really fascinating uh, from the interview. So, I went into this project thinking, oh, the ref is this external thing that is making our lives miserable, and I say our lives because I I used to be, of course an academic in the UK. And I thought a lot initially about the ref in that way. And the sort of computational part of the book that looks at career trajectories and mobility is really inspired by that idea of the ref as sort of an external force on British education or British higher education. And Then the interviews made it much more complicated because even though people naturalize this and see it as part of the game, they also recognize that it is something that affects how they think about their work. I mean, funnily enough, no one said that they start a project because of what the potential ref outcomes of that project might be. So they don't do research because of the ref. But in how the REF is is made to matter on the ground through specific policies of different institutions, through the way, for example, it's taken into account to provide more or less funding and support to different departments or units within a university, it comes to be an important aspect of the, the landscape of, of academics working in the UK. And, they end up, in a way, having to serve the interests of the REF, which are this, this idea of internationally leading and excellent research uh, that funnel slowly research into very specific, homogeneous forms of work. So, again, it's not something... It's it, The interesting thing about this whole thing is that no one sees it as a, a let's say... A guard sitting in their office telling them what they should do, but what everyone does recognize is, is that how it's interpreted, how it's made to matter by their uh, head of department, by their head of school, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, has consequences on their working lives, and that's what ends up mattering. You've alluded a little to that.
1: Homogeneity that has emerged in British social science, and 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 you've also actually mentioned the uh, computational elements of the book, and I think the fieldwork interviews would have been you know more than enough for for a book um, on on its own. But at the same time, you, you do this uh, genuinely kind of fantastic um, analysis of, of how um, British social science has evolved, um, or maybe if we're being critical, kind of devolved over time to be you know, much less kind of characterised by differences, by, I suppose, um, you know, emerging and, and sort of interesting areas and, and more dominated by, I suppose, what you call a kind of a, an idea of like normal science has emerged. Um, and I, I'm fascinated, you know, and there's kind of two questions come in. One, how did you do that? You know, what, what kind of methods were you using to make those sorts of assessments? And and what what does this mean in terms of, say, uh, sociology or, or economics, you, you know, is it, British social science kind of churning out more of the same, you know, what,
0: what's, what's been
1: lost, I suppose?
0: Great. So so I think that in terms of the first question, again, what inspired this book initially was this this question of marketization and how processes that look like markets have effects on a field like, for example, academia. And the market that I was interested in was the labor market for academics, so how do academics move in between institutions, how do they get promoted, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and how might that be associated to the existence of this research evaluation framework, or these research assessment exercises. And that inspired really the first uh, set of methods which were very quantitative and were based on creating a census-like data set containing the career trajectories of as many academics as i could find in the uk and this was really inspired by a lot of work that is being done in in other domains of this thing called the science of science where people Uh, find information about academics from their CVs online or from their publications and create these data sets that represent the lives in the sciences, and in this case, the social sciences, so that then you can do some analysis on them. And indeed, the first leg of the project was building this comprehensive data set so that I could track where people were and what they were writing about via the text, via the articles that they were producing. This, of course, includes a bunch of biases because um, I wasn't taking into account books, which is an issue. I wasn't uh, looking, for example, at promotions. I couldn't say if someone was a lecturer or a reader or a full professor, But what I could do with the data was track mobility movement within this particular uh, market, this labor market, and see how it matched some of the features of the assessment exercises. And what, what was an interesting finding of this is that, indeed, there is a pressure, and we can see the pressure both in in the computational models and in the quantitative models towards homogeneity in the sense that departments need to bet on certain types of distributions of scholars within them and certain types of scholars that leads departments to be much more homogeneous and leads the field itself the disciplines also to be much more homogeneous this doesn't mean that they're not innovating. So there are changes within each of these disciplines, and they have changed over time. But the way they change is more as a discipline than as a fragmented series of sub that have connections, loose connections between them. And so if we take this radically to the to the extreme, one of the things that I like to think about is that under today's REF, something like the uh, Center for Cultural Studies, for Critical Cultural Studies at, um, oh, I'm getting the name wrong, sorry. Are you thinking of Birmingham? Exactly. Uh, so yeah,
1: Center Cultural Studies at Birmingham, yeah, yeah. Which is incredibly famous and hugely influential and you know, basically is the home of British cultural studies for people who aren't, aren't aware of it um, and has set effectively an agenda for cultural and media studies um, for the last, whatever it was, 20 years until it closed and then 20 years since, I think.
0: Exactly. And actually it closed in some respect because of the ref and centers like that would not be possible today because of this pressure to create more competitive, homogeneous departments. So if, if you take it to the extreme, it's sort of like what happens with cell phones. If you buy a cell phone today, a, a mobile, it's, it's very similar if you buy an Apple than if you buy a Samsung, an LG, a CTE, et cetera, et cetera. The, the design, the functionality is very, very similar because that's what the market has driven us to, to this homogeneity in products. And the same thing happens with this quasi-market introduced by the ref in academia. And that is indeed one of the one of the findings of this. And we can see it very powerfully with things like economics. So economics in the UK used to be a very, very diverse domain. So again, the classical uh, so economics emerged in many ways in the United Kingdom. The first chair in economics at a university was in the UK. The discipline was incredibly diverse in the 1920s and 30s with even very different kinds of thinkers in the same institution. And of course, as economics became this dominant international discourse, it became globalized and standardized uh, in the direction of neoclassical economics, the things that were rewarded in the UK were things that looked more like that international global neoclassical economics than, uh, let's say, Keynesian traditions or heterodox traditions that had existed in the UK before. And this this sort of leads to a depletion, for example, of critical uh, ec- economists in the UK. It leads to a loss of voice, a loss of influence on the field, and a profound change to the discipline. And we can see this to lesser extent in other fields, but one of the things I like to say which is, was the most surprising finding perhaps, or one of the most surprising findings, is that in different measures of diversity, of disciplinary diversity, the diversity of sociology today in the UK, which we consider a very diverse active field, is actually similar to the diversity of economics back in the 1980s in the UK. So that gives us a sense of how much economics changed. And also, how my sociology has changed in the last thirty years.
1: Within that story, one of the things I, I really liked,
0: which just kind of comes in towards the
1: end of the book, is a sense that, uh, and again, you, you know, this is, is part of your uh, your work on uh, markets in, in other contexts. That you know, th- these devices to make markets um, and to, to sort of allow them to, to function don't spring up from nowhere. And they certainly don't, you know, sort of land on territories and kind of sweep all things before them. And and what becomes really clear is institutional prestige really matters. And, you know, in a sort of higher education system that has incredibly status uh, obsessed institutions, um, and I suppose like all higher education is is a bit like that, whatever country you're, you're dealing with, Institutional prestige, for some people, becomes a kind of an escape from this system. So, you know, some of your interviewees talk openly about, well, actually, you know, we're all brilliant here. Um, We don't even notice this thing because we're all doing, you know, in in some ways kind of what the ref wants anyway. Um, Other interviewees, you know, feel real kind of pressure because their institution is telling them to do things that, you know, possibly kind of don't fit in terms of their workloads. And, and I'm really keen to know, you know, sort of both how institutional prestige, I suppose, messes with or distorts the impact uh, of these metrics, but also how it allows particular players in the game to kind of get away with things.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's, that's precisely where this sort of mixed methods approach that combined the computational and the interviews was, was so valuable because I could see the, the computational bit didn't allow me to see these types of, of, of questions or issues. And those really emerged only through the interviews. And what became clear is that the position of a department and an institution, both within their field, their discipline, and within the larger institution itself, the university, mattered centrally to how they dealt with with the ref so if you were at a very high prestige institution that sort of capital in a sense would allow you to to sort of extract yourself from some of the pressures of the ref some of that had to do with the fact that you already had people that complied with the ref because you were a very high status institution you would recruit very good people or more competitive individuals that were also competitively minded. So everyone was already in that game. Um, And also, it would allow them to sort of excuse themselves from more intrusive interventions from the organization by saying that that might affect their prestige. So they were already, in a sense, prepared for the ref because of their status and their prestige, but at the same time, they could argue with the bosses that, that because they were so good, they should be spared from some of the more intrusive elements of, of these exercises. And, and this is something that was interesting because I saw it across every single discipline. The, the levels of prestige that in a, a unit had were really central to how people within that unit would experience these evaluations. And if we think of it, that's sort of also something we observe in, in other markets, where the level of visibility of a particular brand or a particular company allows them to do certain things that would be impossible for lower status, less visible um, players in that particular market. And, and this was really surprising because what it means is that the direction of this homogeneity is, of course, towards these types of institutions um, and towards the type of work that is conducted in these types of institutions because they are spared to some extent from the more grueling elements of these exercises and these evaluations. And it's funny to see, again, this this trade-off of prestige and freedom to some extent, which is actually quite problematic if we think of it, because it means that these prestige structures that define academia centrally are also, presti- are also structures that define what gets produced in academia, the types of social theories we generate, the, s- the type of accounts we think about, the type of contributions we make. And that is concerning because um, we might be losing out on lots of really fantastic accounts because they're hitting behind this, this veil of prestige.
1: And on the level of
0: um, kind of an
1: individual worker within within this labor market, I suppose it really corrodes the possibility of um, what you, you call later on, right towards the end of the book, of, of reflexive solidarities, because, you know, essentially the people at the top are kind of doing all right. <laughs> and, you know, there are questions about the extent to which, you know, they both might want to kind of resist and challenge a system that effectively is kind of catering to their needs. And and I mean, one of the things that and I've mentioned this a, a couple of times. I think you, you know the kind of complexity, the ambivalence of of, of um, people's um, kind of experiences throughout the book um, of, of these regimes. But at the same time, um, you do kind of say, well, actually, there are really you know serious issues about things like gender inequality. Um, and, and and I suppose the kind of broader inequalities that academia is um, discussing and, and kind of grappling with at the moment. And I suppose to, to formulate that into a <laughs> into a question you can can answer rather than a, a sort of soapbox comment from from me. What what are the kind of possibilities of you know overturning or, or challenging this regime of, uh, of quantification? And, and in some ways, kind of should we be doing that anyway? You know it. Is it the case that we've got you know a sort of a, a positive regime of quantification that needs tweaking, or is it something that really needs to go?
0: So, so I think I think throwing the baby out with the bathwater is not the solution. Um, specifically, because again, these these metrics, these forms of quantification, do perform a type of public work that might be important to sustain higher education, but at the same time. I think that fighting for certain things to be counted would be important. So why not include indices or metrics that speak directly, for example, to the the strife that academics live in different institutions or levels of equity, both in terms of gender and the minorities that are employed in those institutions, uh, to be included in how they're evaluated? and for that to be as central as research because i've become increasingly cynical over the years and as sort of as we see the climate catastrophe that we're experiencing and as we observe also the massive levels of inequality that societies are are sort of seeing are, are living i think it becomes really important to th- rethink our vocation as scholars and to Think of the research that we do not necessarily as something that will persist for ages and ages, but something that is fickle, that will eventually disappear, will be superseded by something else. And to really internalize that to some extent as a mantra, because what that means is that what matters more than getting that paper out in that particular journal is making sure that your colleagues, that the people that are accompanying you in this intellectual voyage are also having a decent life, a livable life. And a lot of that has to do with how we evaluate each other. Um, At the end of the day, the REF is, is fueled by what disciplines consider this international standard to be. It is fueled by the committees that exist within individual departments, the ones that are formed at the level of institutions, and of course, the, the panels that evaluate everyone's research at the end of the, the process. And those are spaces that we inhabit as academics. And there is no reason why we cannot think about those standards in different ways, make those standards something that speaks to, again, these solidarities, rather than to the structure, structures of prestige of our fields. And that really, I think, is a great challenge. I think throwing evaluations out in and of themselves might produce a, a sort of negative result, in which respect uh, having a transparent way of evaluating each other's research can be good as a means for guaranteeing, for example, Equity in promotions, equity in hiring, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, what is it that we're counting? Is a discussion that we haven't had enough about, enough uh, in in the in the in the field, in the discipline. And what we tend to count as prestige, what we can't tend to count as status, rather than things that were would make our lives more ne- meaningful, not only to ourselves, but also to others in academia and beyond
1: and that i think is a point that's really worth stressing in, in terms of the broader um importance of this book um that you know it's got british social sciences in the title but actually um i think there are lots of lessons in precisely what you've just been saying there for you know my continental european colleagues um Southeast Asian colleagues, certainly colleagues in Australia, certainly colleagues in in the US and and Canada as well, you know, none of which have the British ref kind of madness, but have their own, you know, um, both formal metrics and then also, as you've described, kind of status hierarchies. And and it prompts me to to kind of wonder, where do you go next for this um, agenda, It really? In some ways, I, I could see how, Um, This book, um, you know, marks the kind of um, the end of a a particular agenda, thinking about um, the sociology of um, social science and and, and its uh, various regimes. But also I can see how there's, you know, several lines of possible research inquiry that come from it. So what, what you sort of thinking of in, in terms of the next uh, research agenda. So so I have two projects
0: and they they do dovetail from the quantified scholar in in some some respect. The first one is directly connected to that and has to do with my my experience in the US and it's also a story about markets, not so much markets but market devices or accounting devices. And what it does is it looks at the the way Budget models have been transformed in in US higher education over the last 30 years to adopt models that force different units, different departments, or different parts of the university to compete with each other. And it essentially assigns value to departments, disciplines, et cetera, et cetera, on the basis of this competition. Things like, for example, how many students you have in a major, or how many students you have enrolled in your courses. And what that project is trying to look at are the, the, the consequences of these models on the, the composition of higher education in the US, so processes of gendering and racialization of fields, for example but also of course the consequences for shared governance, which is this ideal that people have. It tends to be a a sort of ideal that is never truly achieved because at the end of the day, these models challenge the distribution of power on campuses in the US in particular, giving more power to administrators, managers, and technical experts that oversee these models than uh, to academics who might understand fields and knowledge production in in a very different way. So that 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 project is about this aspect of 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 markets. It's the introduction of these things, these objects, budget models in higher higher education to see what they did to how we produce knowledge. And the tagline for that one is. Uh, sort of what's the difference in value between an ethnic studies scholar and an engineer. And of course, we actually have tables for that in universities that are fascinating, terrifying, and because of that, great objects of analysis. And another project that is also connected to this has to do with the the change of science. This one is also indirectly about markets, um, which is the change of uh, knowledge production in contemporary discussions about science. And it focuses in particular on this idea of the the Instagram experts or the influencer expert, people who have created public expertise on the basis of social media and uh, very prominent book deals, and that are not actually experts or contributory experts in the things that they talk about uh, but are very very prominent in conversations Um, we can see this on the level of policy but also on discussions around covid etc etc and that project includes a little project on mexico and then a bigger project on how Social media and book publishing in general has transformed the public sphere in relation to science.